Hi everyone, and welcome back to this week's Feminist Futures. I'm your host, Wallace Grant. I hope you're all, yeah, well, I guess that's the only thing I can offer. It's not a great time, but I know that this is kind of the worst of it, so better things are, are yet to come, and I hope that you're all um, healthy and safe. There was no podcast last week, apologies about that. I decided to take a bit of a longer winter break to feel recharged and re-energised going into, into the new year. This week's podcast looks at climate and environmental justice. I'm joined this week by Alexis McGivern. Alexis is currently reading for an MPhil in Environmental Change and Management at Oxford, looking at community resistance to incinerators in the UK. Alexis and I studied our undergrad together, and I have to admit that from the first moment I met her, I was definitely a big fangirl of her, and particularly around her environmental activism. And it's been such a joy to watch her professional and academic career flourish in the area that she's so passionate about and so and so knowledgeable about now. When I originally started looking at this week's episode and researching around it, I was thinking more about environmental justice and had examples of those in my head. But you'll see as the episode goes along, we the conversation sort of steers more into climate justice and so I think that's what the main focus of it will be and what you should expect. We ask questions like, can we achieve a climate just future in a capitalist society? Or who needs to have power to make that happen? And how can women and other BIPOC activists who've been traditionally blocked out of those spaces claim space and create advocacy and power for themselves? And we talk about if the UK is really doing as well as it can be on creating a climate just future, or if they're simply placing a band-aid on something that will break down in the long term. As always, if you've enjoyed or want to challenge anything from the podcast, please, please give us a like and a share on Instagram and Twitter, or you can also email on feministfuturespodcast at gmail.com. Enjoy the show. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm yeah, it's really exciting also to have a, like a an old university colleague like to chat with <laughs> about these things where we've gone on to do like different things and, and exciting new things. Yeah, I was really interested in talking about this topic because one, I'm desperately trying to get more into understanding the climate crisis and the effects of it and impacts just because I think, you know, everyone needs to be. Um, and I think it's a really, it's quite a daunting topic to come in in it. So I've been going in it at, in different angles. And environmental justice is something I've come across in um, different realms. So I've seen it as like a framing of how to understand the climate crisis. I've seen it in sort of activist um, approaches to it. But yeah, it'd be really great if we could start just to give us a kind of short definition of what environmental justice means to you and how you've come to understand it. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. Um, I love the idea for this podcast, and I'm excited to uh, hear all the other episodes um, and what other uh, amazing um, women are doing and thinking about this these big problems that we're facing. So I guess at the, at the base of it, and this is pretty, um, pretty standard, but I think important to say at the top is that the the biggest profound injustice of uh, climate change is that those who are least responsible for it are the ones who are most burdened by its impacts. Um, and so basically that means that the people who are most burdened are um, mostly people in the global south, um, people of color, uh, women, indigenous peoples, um, and I, again, they're the ones who have had the least to do with it, um, which is 
which is uh, horrific and kind of feels uh, almost designed to be the most unfair problem that we're facing. Um, but environmental justice is basically this this theory, this movement, this idea that we can pursue um, ecological balance or um, ecological justness at the same time as social justice. Basically just trying to say that our ecological and social problems are not separate from one another. They actually um, fuel each other. They're actually consequences of the same thing, which is um, exploitation, capitalist exploitation, or extractive economies, colonialism, all those uh, horrible things that uh, that kind of had lev- have led us to both profound um, social injustice, but also the ecological and climate crisis that we're facing now. So it's basically saying that we can solve or or remedy these problems in the same way, which is by pursuing kind of justice on both fronts. Definitely, I think I, w- I want to pick up on that 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 kind of small thing that you brought up was the idea of it being deliberate that's something that I've um in the research just that I've been doing by the podcast and kind of things that I've been reading about what astonishes me is that when you look back at these injustices so I'll just use an example the one that kind of um stuck out for myself was the so-called sort of godfather of environmental justice who's this guy called Robert Bullard he's a socialist from the US he did some research in the 1980s that showed that in disproportionately black neighborhoods were being um targeted to have waste sites for kind of um pollution or other like just household waste and I think the stats were like 82 percent of the waste was dumped in black neighborhoods even though 25 percent of the population was black so that just screams injustice and screams this kind of disproportionate effect it for me also what I what it's kind of struck me about the conversation is that we're talking about it not only on this like city and kind of uh, localized level so within a community but on the kind of macro scale and you talked a little bit about you know communities in the south and communities um you know indigenous communities being kind of impacted by that could you talk a little bit more about any examples that you've come across that kind of illustrate this on the kind of macro scale yeah, well, first of all, I uh, love that you brought up Robert Bullard because he's one of my yeah. personal heroes. I'm doing my research here at, at Oxford on um, the placing of waste incinerators in the UK and the kind of um, environmental injustices of where they're placed. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, a lot of my work has been informed by um, Robert Bullard and other scholars who have looked at this. And there's actually a number of, of really interesting examples. I mean, um, yeah, I could talk about uh, Robert Bullard's work all day, but there's there's kind of um, it, there was an interesting sequence of different uh, sociologists and other researchers who basically from the kind of late 1970s through to the early 90s had very specific examples of where toxic waste was being uh, located and disproportionately, uh, as you mentioned, in Black um, and Latinx communities. And so that kind of has been the that's from the academic perspective, that's where all of the research originated from for the first instance is on um, waste waste placement in the US. So yeah, interesting to bring that up. And I think there's a helpful framework within kind of academia to understand how how we look at environmental justice problems. So the first is what you kind of uh, alluded to at the beginning with, with the Bullard example of distributive injustice. So where are like harmful we call them lulus, which is locally unwanted land uses. Um, so where are lulus being placed and in which, in which communities are they being placed, in which communities are they not being placed? That comes a lot um, in, yeah, as I mentioned, there's been a lot of research on toxic waste. And then the next one is mm-hmm. basically procedural injustice. So to what extent are the the legal frameworks that are meant to protect people from these environmental hazards, to what extent are they working in the same way in 
BIPOC communities, so Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities, as they are in white communities mm-hmm. or other wealthier communities. And that's like from a very from a very um, practical angle. It's it's like what what languages are public hearings in? What are the penalties for hazardous waste violations? Are they the same everywhere? What are the resources offered to communities for legal recourse? Uh, how long do cases get to to, take to get seen so like those very practical details come into procedural justice and then the the final thing is like occupational and social um injustice so that's basically like who who works at these sites um wh- what is how is that associated with where you live i mean there's been a lot of really interesting research for example on like latinx uh, agricultural workers in california and the yeah. the like really bad uh, working conditions and the pesticides and the, the amount of sickness that people are experiencing or um there's a as an area of Louisiana, which is like colloquially known as um, Cancer Alley, because it's yeah. it's like the mm-hmm. the highest incidence of cancer, fifty times higher than the rest of the United States, because of the amount of petrochemical plants that are there. So, and and then just to break it up a little bit further, so that we kind of have the like environmental injustice, um, and then there's also climate injustice. So, so environmental justice looks a lot at environmental hazards, and then climate justice looks at kind of the disproportionate impacts of climate change. So that's also on like a a, a bigger macro level, and at that stage, we kind of look at who's being affected disproportionately and just kind of within the lens of your your podcast, I mean, it is disproportionately the burdens are on, uh, as I mentioned, the, the groups that I, I mentioned before. So um, in the global south, indigenous people, but also within those groups on women, trans, intersex people, um, the burden is much higher. So even even things like so climate change, uh, well, there's kind of contestations over the, the level to which we can really say this for certain, but climate change is increasing the amount of uh, storms and, and the amount of natural disasters that we're facing, which actually some people are trying to veer away from the term natural disaster because it gives a, it's kind of like a, mm. it's not natural anymore. <laughs> um, it's a bit of an oxymoron if climate change, if it's actually to do with the way that the, we're kind of exactly, affecting the exactly. climate. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're disrupting mm-hmm. the climate. There are more storms. Those storms, again, as if it were designed, are, are hitting in the places that are least able to to manage the, the aftermath of those of those like heavy storms. I mean, in the last month, uh, like the Philippines have been hit with two typhoons, um, and the the images and, and the news that's coming out of the Philippines is really devastating. Um, but within within those groups, like the Oxfam did a report um, last year that showed that uh, after Hurricane Maria, the the people who disproportionately bore, bore the burden of that storm were women because they they're kind of heads of the household and they have to deal with with um all, all the kind of implications of household management in a house that has been torn apart by a storm um and the fact that you know water supplies and food supplies are, are more precarious after a storm so important to look at it through a gendered lens as well as as looking at a uh, kind of a geographic distribution of vulnerability definitely I think it's that sense of if there's any sense of insecurity it's those who are without power are are the first to be affected in in that way so that's why you know women often in these communities you know even with COVID we've seen a a huge rise in gender-based violence and domestic domestic abuse um not just in the global south but also you know within the UK and other other global north um, countries I wanted to kind of just talk a little bit before we go and look at the kind of um what would be the perfect <laughs> the perfect kind of um vision of it it's interesting that you kind of separated out the environmental and climate um climate justice because i think i was thinking about them both together but actually they are quite separate um in those kind of framings but to kind of slightly bring it back in terms of the impact that covid has had had on this topic so i was reading a, a, a report or a study that showed that with 
COVID has actually exposed, as it has with many of the many of the issues, uh, the impacts of environmental injustice. So I think it was in the US talking about specific cities where there are pollution and those people who are exposed to, to higher levels of pollution are less likely to be able to kind of weather COVID if they if they get it or more likely to be affected um, badly by it. Just wanted to kind of anecdotally or if you've seen the kind of impact has COVID kind of stirred um, people to think about this in a different way or has it helped to expose some of these injustices that weren't there before? I think that um, a couple of things have come up interestingly about COVID. I think the first is that uh, I, I don't know if you've seen this this kind of cartoon that was passing along which was uh, like two people on a boat and, and there's like a huge fish um, and I can't really describe it very well, but basically they're like, oh, this is the most terrifying thing. And then there's a much bigger fish like underneath the surface. They're saying that, that one of them is labeled COVID-19 and the other is labeled the climate crisis. So it's basically yeah. showing that like we think that this is the most the most amount of personal freedoms that we've had to give up, um, the most uh, change to our lifestyle. Um, but actually, this kind of uh, is just a tester for for how our lives will change um, if we don't like tackle the climate crisis. And and. Just to say as well is that I think climate change is sometimes viewed as a, um, a future problem, uh, is something that will happen in the future. But that is very much speaking from a global north perspective that we're still very much shielded from the impacts of climate change at this stage. Um, and that is actually not entirely true because farmers have, have really felt the impacts of climate change. But um, but I, I would say that it's kind of seeing that something happening in the future where there are people who are, again, living with the daily realities of COVID and climate the climate crisis at the same time. I mean, I'll come back to the example of the Philippines, um, the fact that people are trying to distribute aid and post-disaster relief in an environment where they're also having to, you know, abide by social distancing protocols and 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 all those exactly, yeah. uh, considerations is huge. I, I would say the other thing that's come out um, at, during COVID is there's been an increase in, I think, the understanding and resilience of communities to support one another through difficult times. Um, I... I personally I've seen a lot I mean I'm based in Oxford and there's been a lot of um, community groups mutual aid groups that have come together and said we can't rely on the government to take care of us because they're just not doing a good job of that and so how can we how can we rally together as a community and make sure that we're taking care of one another and I, I do wonder if if that kind of ethics of care will extend into how we view one another um, in, in moving forward into our next big challenge, which is the, the climate crisis. And, and even things like people's decision to wear a mask is to protect others, not to protect themselves. Um, exactly. And how much mm-hmm. of your changes and your kind of quote unquote personal sacrifices that you're making in, um, you know, how you're voting, how you're traveling, how you're uh, eating, how, how much of that is, is, an act of solidarity with communities that are on the front lines of the climate crisis. So when I kind of get frustrated by the, you know, personal changes that will, will be required of climate change, I'm also thinking that there's someone my age in Bangladesh who's having their life, their lives entirely transformed by the climate crisis already. And I would like to act in solidarity with that person and with those people. Um, and, I, and I think that changing your habits uh, as a, with solidarity as a motivator is something that I hope will keep us on this road for longer. Definitely. I think you're so right. I think I hadn't thought about that 
kind of ethics of care because I think people are coming together and you're seeing yeah people making decisions not based on for themselves but for for others and actually I was similarly very pleasantly surprised at how much people were willing to rally around how much people were willing to help their their neighbors and I think that is something that is that has to be present within the climate crisis movement if there's you know for even just taking like the floods that happen you know for example in the north of England um last year and often happen quite 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 um a few times a year you see a sense of community solid solidarity in these situations but that's going to become the norm you know if we end up you know as we kind of move towards more not natural disasters but other you know kind of big things come through I just want to quickly touch on one of the points is that one of the things that really struck me about looking at environmental justice and or, or climate justice is just how much how much of an impact the injustices have on people's health. That's something that I think is often missed out or people kind of don't associate that loop with is that the impacts that the environment that we have around us is actually the biggest impact I imagine it has is on our health and well-being. I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and if that's something you've seen in your research and kind of any examples that that come to mind. Yeah, I mean, super important point. And I actually think that the environmental movement in general has shifted uh, its narrative and its framing from sad polar bears and, and, and that kind of imaging towards more relatable pictures of other people and the the day-to-day impacts that they're facing. And I actually find that that kind of shift in messaging really interesting. I'm, I'm doing a class right now on climate change communication, actually, and we talked about this shift over, over time. So um, kind of in my head, uh, looking at that from like a framing perspective. But um, from my perspective, uh, I mean, having worked on pl- plastic pollution and, and waste management, I saw that shift actually very happened in real time, which was the kind of blue planet effect that that was um after the blue planet documentary came out and there was this you know images of uh you know turtles stuck in um rings of beer rings and things like that and that messaging is is compelling and it, it definitely brought a lot of people on board but i don't know that it necessarily lasts very long um whereas in my organization that I was previously working for um we we kind of tried to shift a little bit our messaging from problems in the ocean that feel very far away from people and not everybody feel many people have never even been to the ocean um and so those those problems can feel very distant whereas saying um on a couple fronts so saying on the first first part the the manufacturing of plastic is hurting people in their communities so i talked about louisiana but there are other petrochemical um plants uh, across the world so that's at the at the uh, production stage that's hurting people um at the consumption stage it's hurting people because there are chemicals that are in um that are leaching from our our plastic packaging into our food and so um not only i'm not you're not able to separate yourself unless you can completely cut out any exposure to plastic which is like extraordinarily difficult to do so you and your family and your children are vulnerable to this problem and then at the disposal stage um like there's so many impacts. I mean, uh, we look, I, I obviously focus on incineration and there's a lot of government and kind of industry research that shows that there's no impact, no health impacts of incineration, but there's also a lot of things that aren't covered in risk assessments. So for example, the fact that if you build an incinerator in your community, you're going to have a massive increase in the amount of lorry movements um, to and from your community every single day, because you're bringing in, you're going to bring in waste from other communities. I mean, there's no, there's no place that could feed just through your own waste. And so, so the amount of air pollution, um, which is definitely uh, well researched and well understood, that cars cause um, 
has impacts on our lungs. Th- those things aren't covered in the risk assessment for the incinerator as a kind of one one. Uh, what do you call it, static building. Um, And I think that's something that is like a huge failure of of environmental risk assessments. You're also not looking at the fact that once an incinerator is created and the types of people um, that will be that will be working there and moving there. And then what often ends up happening is that other industrial sites end up getting clustered around incinerators as well. So what kind of um, environmental environmental impacts are we having on those uh, on those uh, plants and things like that? So um, and then if we look I mean, there's a, there's a lot of inc- the research that um, the Global Alliance of um, Incinerator Alternatives, Gaia, they they have done a lot of research on the impacts of incinerators. And there's also, a, what's really important to consider is that enforcement of environmental regulation is not equal around the world. So while you yes. could maybe build a plant in the UK and it could be, it could operate or or Denmark or Sweden, which is what people always use as examples, like, oh, they're the, they're the pioneers of incineration technology. It happens a lot that incinerators get built in parts of the world where environmental regulation is not as strong and then the community has to deal with the fact that there is um, an incinerator that is not up to environmental uh, standards and they're the ones who are at the front lines of that so um, at each stage i mean from a from a from a waste perspective at each stage there are there are huge implications on our health yeah no i think that was such a really interesting and useful example to show and show that there are so many aspects of as you said like something being built but then the kind of risk assessment that goes around it doesn't actually cover those those problems so you're not even having the evidence and data to to back that up i want to move on slightly and, and try and paint a bit of a nicer or positive picture which i think is is quite difficult to do obviously in the climate crisis and i want to kind of um start this segment by saying that you know we the action that we need to take needed to be taken years ago you know you know this and lots of lots of other people do know this but I want to try and sort of imagine what a vision for the future would be I guess we can take it more of in that kind of climate justice bracket in that sense what what would that look like for you it can be personally or or on kind of a research academics perspective and yeah for sure and and just to say um something that i find really helpful in envisioning new futures and again i'm I'm sorry i'm going to take it back to an academic concept but there's a really interesting um kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, paper, I guess, uh, from, a, there's a thing called the Power Cube, which is Gaventus Power Cube. Have you heard of this? Um, okay, so it's it's really cool. We, we studied it in my, in my uh, master's here last year. But it's basically looking at like uncovering hidden forms of power and how, to view, how you dismantle oppression at different levels. So there's basically three levels to, it looks like a Rubik's Cube, basically. And so you look at the spaces for participation. So it kind of goes at the, the different levels of power. So the spaces spaces for participation. So from closed closed spaces that are like closed door spaces that you're not allowed in, to invited spaces, which is a closed space, but they invite like a BIPOC activist or a woman onto a panel, but it's still an inherently closed space. And then the final is like claimed or created spaces. So like, how are you rejecting the hegemonic spaces and creating a new space or a new mobilization for yourself? So one is spaces for participation. The next is level of participation. So like local, national, or global. And then the final uh, like part of the cube is visibility of power. So like from visible power, which is authorities and rules and laws, um, hidden power, which is like, who is shaping what's on the agenda and then invisible power, which is uh, what are the kind of norms and status quo that inform how our society operates. So I just, I find that a very helpful way to look at how you can kind of create change because you're aiming. I mean, I think the goal is to, to unpick each of those 
places in order to create a more meaningful future. So I had always thought that, um, for example, that invited spaces was the, the best way to look at um, like inc- increasing diversity. So having, you know, having more women, having more um, people of color, having more indigenous people speak on panels and, and speaking at influential spaces um, and that that would change the agenda. But I actually think there's a lot of power in these like claimed and created spaces. So I think what we're seeing increasingly in like a climate activist space is that instead of going by the terms that have been set by kind of like older um, more conservative thinkers on climate. Um, young people are kind of just fostering these new spaces for themselves, especially young women. So I guess uh, to, to come to, to a vision, I guess, I would say a climate just future looks beyond technocratic solutions to climate change, um, beyond green energy, green jobs, uh, green economy, which is vital, but I, I don't, I think we can go further and kind of looks at dismantling the the rotten roots of, of uh, like upon which we've built this like treehouse of, of global society. I think it takes a hard look at how we've created the society um, and the economic values that we, what we like put, put um, a lot of credence in today. I think there's a lot to be said for um, reconciliation and reparations for um, colonial violence and colonial um, consequences of colonialism, which I think have been extraordinarily brushed under the carpet. I I didn't even, I don't think I even realized until I moved to, um, to England, I was living in Scotland before, as you know, and um, I think that there was, there's just more discussion of, uh, of kind of colonial powers than, than there is here. It's just completely washed under the rug. So I think there's something to be said for kind of, grappling with colonial um, legacies. Uh, and then as for the day-to-days, I think moving our lens from damage control and climate change to seeing how we can flourish in a, in a care economy. I mean, that sounds a little bit abstract when I say it like that, but I think it's more about valorizing different types of roles and different types of values that are created in society. I mean, coming from a feminist perspective, I think there's a huge amount of work that women are doing that is like completely either not even considered or, or undervalued. And so coming back to this ethics of care, um, making sure that we're caring for our communities, let's start, let's start for ourselves, for our communities and for, uh, for the planet. And I think those things are right now in the way that, it, that we operate. It's basically like if you have time left over at the end of the day, you care for those three things. And, and I think that's really frustrating. I mean, thinking about where I want to be after Oxford, I want to make sure that I'm working for somewhere that co- like consciously carves out space for their employees to give back to their communities. And I think that's something that is yeah. really frustratingly not, um, not that big part of thing. I think I've, I've kind of like have all these random threads of, of what a future could look like, but I guess to, to boil it down, valuing, uh, valuing care in its different forms, um, making sure that's integrated as part of our kind of mainstream values, dealing with the roots of exploitation that have been swept under the rug. So dealing with uh, dismantling our colonial legacy that comes from education systems, that comes from reparations, and making sure that uh, that resources and expertise and and support is flowing to where it needs to be. And then I guess the the last thing I would say is that we we when we're dealing with a climate crisis together, we're we're moving away from a purely technocratic lens and more towards um, a future that is not only just doing damage control, but rather like looking for an, a, a climate justice approach that allows communities and our environment to flourish at the same time. Yeah, no, I think that that makes a lot of sense. The theme that kind of came out there was just this kind of dismantling of power yeah. and the systems that exist now. And as you said, you know, 
thinking back is it good to invite someone onto onto a panel whether that's tokenistic or meaningful but at the same time if the terms that are set there aren't actually going to achieve anything then then what's the point it's better to carve out space I think I wanted to just challenge a little bit or to, to talk a little bit about whether you think that environmental justice or climate justice can be achieved in a capitalist system Obviously, it's a really huge topic and, and definitely there's not obviously a yes or no answer, but it's something that I've come across, particularly in the in kind of feminist approaches or, or readings of it, is that, you know, you touched on it, this, this care economy, we need to be moving towards that. And it's something I think in many ways, part of me doesn't believe that it's possible for for environmental, for justice in, in its form to exist in capitalism just because of the, the way of the system. But I think on a practical level, I'm not sure how that would look and what we would transition to. But just wondered your your thoughts on 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 capitalism essentially and whether it's possible. <laughs> thoughts are bad. No, it's um, like a thesis isn't his whole thing, right? Um. <laughs> uh, I would say I, I I do think and having fallen into this uh, mere moments ago when I was talking about my vision for the future, I think there is a tendency for. Um, sometimes some people in the climate sphere to speak about these issues um, as if they are less difficult than they are, I guess. I mean, I, I say things like dismantling, dismantling colonial legacy, which I think is, is an, an unbelievably important thing, but I, I, it's, it's hard to pin that down to how you do that in a day-to-day -day context. So when I, say, when I say something like the climate crisis is at its root caused by capitalist exploitation, that is, also, that is both simultaneously true and also I don't know that it really says anything or it really like changes anything. It's kind of almost become yeah. a, a buzzword that is just like thrown around at the beginning of every environmental speech. It's like, oh yes, of course, this is at the root of uh, colonial and capitalist exploitation. And I really want to avoid like it staying in that space. So I would say um, a couple of things. The discussions of degrowth are really um, very compelling in many ways. One of the things that one of my professors was saying here is that degrowth is a wonderful concept, but solving climate change takes money and we need money to come from growth. And so one of the things that, that, I, that I found pretty interesting is like, how are you going to pay for the damages of climate change and also the fact that uh, mitigation options are expensive without kind of fundamentally changing. So, uh, so basically knowing that people are suffering because of the climate crisis now, can you really wait to change society while we're going up and we're, we're on track to hit 1.5 degrees um, by, by 2030? So it's like, do I want to create this beautiful utopian society, which might take longer while people are dying every single day from the climate crisis, when we know that if we went for a kind of band-aid technocratic fix, we might buy ourselves more time. But then the other thing is, we're at this junction now. Should we not take the opportunity to envision what uh, what a greater future could look like? The other thing is that, as we've seen with COVID-19, when we have a, something in the system that basically forces a stop in our like capitalist means of production and our way of creating value in society, if you maybe told me, oh, okay, we're going to have a point where we can't spend money on anything but pretty much like food, and the only thing we can do is go outside, and the only thing we, I would say, wow, that's that's phenomenal. I mean, I wonder what happened to get us there. But I think the problem is, is that, um, and I get so frustrated when politicians are calling COVID-19 the great equalizer, because it's just absolutely not. And the people who are on the front lines and the yeah. people who are suffering the most are the people who were either in the gig economy or who were in informal work or who were, um, you know, who, whose, whose jobs were more precarious. And the people who have stayed 
and, and, and who are, have kept their jobs are people who I would argue are not creating that much value for society. It's like, you know, corporate lawyers doing mergers and, uh, you know, pharmaceutical companies making medicines for diabetes more expensive, things like that. So it's like, okay, so I want to just, I think that, uh, that our capitalist system is inherently unjust and unequal. But in dismantling it, am I going to harm the people who are living the most precarious livelihoods? It's absolutely not what I want. And so I think it's easy. Uh, I think I'm I'm frightened of, of having this utopian, very academic vision of a utopian future, but also being guarded with this like bubble of privilege around me to be able to say, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do believe that the capitalism is inherently unequal because there could be so many people who would be worse off in another system Um if we changed too quickly or I don't know, I just, I just don't want this like runaway train of yeah. injustice to happen in another way of organizing our society and our money. Completely. No, I think, I think it's a really good point. It's about, it's how are we going to manage that transition? I think is, is really interesting. And actually one of the questions that I was going to follow up with was like, like we need to, as you said, we need to tackle the climate crisis and to, you know, stop the, the hitting that 1.5 as soon as possible, you know, yesterday if possible, but not. And, what what I'm interested in is that do environmental justice or issues of justice do they get sidelined when when this idea of tackling the climate change kind of trumps that you kind of touched on it a little bit it's like do we use capitalist means to stop this happening and kind of this idea of growth versus de- degrowth when they are the roots of of causing it in the first place but they might be the first one to stop it happening or might have the best chances just because of the way the system's set up i don't really have an answer an answer to that i wanted to just quickly talk about in terms of your vision you talked a little bit about this carving out of spaces for um um people of color for you know indigenous communities for women in, in that spaces do you do you think that the last few years, particularly with the kind of informal kind of rise of like I'm thinking of XR and other like big kind of um, um, campaign groups have allowed that idea of carving space to become easier or the kind of path to it to become to come easier? Because I think like we are seeing a lot of change, but often when I look at the climate crisis movement, I'm still aware that it's not diverse at all. I wonder if you come across any good practices for that carving out of space, particularly for women and other minorities. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a really good point. I, I think, um, uh, so a couple of things. I, I would say there's been, while I really admire the kind of grassroots um, activism, I think there's, there's also an important point to be made that uh, it can sometimes even in these claimed and created spaces, like coming back to that power cube, there can be exclusions. So uh, there, there's a really good group in the UK called Wretched of the Earth. Um, I don't know if you've heard of them, but they, they're basically a coalition of, of actors the, around the UK that, that work on kind of climate justice in a more um, equal way. So it's a lot of, uh, they, they have alliances with Black Lives Matter UK and they, they kind of look, look at it from a more... Um, uh, a, a perspective of people of color, basically. And one of the things I found really interesting um, and how I heard, first heard about them was that they were pushing XR in the way that they organize and the way that that can be exclusionary. So saying like your main tactic is disruption and getting arrested. Like to whom is that available? Because, um, you know, it's, 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 it, it's, I have complicated feelings about XR, but in many ways, it's like, I've never seen so many people out on the street. I mean, I was like moved to tears every time I went to an XR protest because it was just like, felt so lonely for so long, like being like the quote unquote, like environmental person. And then suddenly seeing all these people who were out and, and so passionate about it, like was really motivating and really gave me a lot of energy. But at the same time, I, I wonder if there's kind of a, 
an issue of exclusion just through your methods of organizing. Um, and, and I think uh, XR has been criticized for being like a pretty middle-class white movement. But it, then in other ways, I'm also have heard them speak about it and saying that they know that they're utilizing their white privilege in order to be able to be on, like to be arrested. And, and they, they're not asking people yeah. of color to do that. They're asking them to, to be a part of the movement in other ways. So, and also it's hard because XR is not a, it's not an organization. It's not a monolith. It's like multiple different movements. Um, so I guess that was one thing is, is having balances and different perspectives to be able to challenge, like even groups that become mainstream that start on grassroots, then become pretty mainstream. The other thing is, I guess, um, there's been, I've, I've actually seen a lot of really cool new spaces on, on, um, like how we're funding and who we're funding. Um, there's, there's, there's been, it's actually a really cool, um, uh, organization called Frida um and they do they like fund young yeah young feminist futures really cool and um I heard about them pretty recently but I, I think that's also really interesting to say like instead of having these huge grants from the World Bank that's uh, shift millions of uh, hundreds of millions of, of dollars around the world in ways that might not even be effective or to governments that might not um be using that effectively it's kind of like targeting change makers and then giving them that space and then I also think that there's been kind of pushing for how we're making spaces uh like for example the the UK announced their COP26 uh team and it was all men yeah. and yes, there is a yes. lot of pushback from that which which I I I expected, but I, 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 I'm, I'm very glad to see it because it, I think if that had happened even like five years ago, I don't know that necessarily as many, not only eyebrows, but voices would have been raised against it. And so I think um, that's also interesting in, in terms of those invited spaces, like, okay, I, I don't necessarily want them to just put a, put a woman on their panel just to be a token woman. But I also think it speaks a lot to how the government values and creates like space if there's not anything and and even pulling further back from that sorry to kind of move off the question a little bit no it's okay even just who I think there needs to be a lot more done on who is even an environmental expert I mean like I think that what what happens a lot is that we view environmental expertise in like a very specific way um and it's like you you go to university or you do a master's or you do a PhD like first of all to whom is that available um money-wise, time-wise, etc. But then also there's so many other ways of knowing the environment and knowing, understanding the world that don't fit into like our kind of epistemic uh, traditions in the global north. And so I think there's also something to be said for 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 integrating like different ways of knowing and different uh, kind of capacity. Sorry, that's kind of a different point, but I think it's something that, that no I think it's really important actually I was just thinking that I don't know if you've read there's a book by Mary Robinson it's called a climate justice and man-made problem with a feminist I actually just got it recently um yeah there you go on the same way then um I read it I thought it was it was definitely interesting it's definitely okay I'm not I'm gonna say criticism then do a kind of positive thing I think it is quite an old school feminist perspective if that makes sense in terms of that it doesn't really talk about kind of dismantling these like structures of power in that way, but it does talk about getting women involved in um, different important, as you said, like what is an expert? So they have people like people from indigenous communities who talk about the breakdown of, um, I think it was from like in Norway, you know, indigenous communities have seen the ice melt away and what that means. And they're able to track and talk about the effects of it more effectively than a scientist is because they're in nature every single day or someone, a woman from Kenya who, you know, was talking about 
the impacts of of droughts and and, and famine in in her area that was happening and they were able to to more effectively speak to communities because they're involved in them but as you said kind of lowering that barrier or creating change for who we think is an expert I think that also helps with bringing people into these spaces like sometimes you know you see these things and I'm like okay great you've got like you know these amazing academic you know kind of things but sometimes the people who are the most interesting are the ones who've lived through it and the ones who are like this is you know part of my community and and often that comes from women or comes from um people of color who are able to to kind of actually talk about their experiences there um it's a good book though i'm not not definitely not it's it's worth it for the case studies and in terms of the perspectives Mm -hmm. from 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 different women there i want to kind of just slightly move on to talking about how we get there obviously this is like a huge huge topic but I, i wanted to try and sort of get some thoughts on you and kind of practical steps that you know we could take to to really ensure that there is climate justice or environmental justice and I think we've talked a little bit about kind of the disbanding of power how (laughs) I'll take the UK government but how how confident are you that we are able to see more of a kind of environmental justice or climate justice approach within like the UK in terms of their kind of policies or the way that they're making their environmental policy do you have any any faith in in this government to do that, or is that something we need to be moving, looking for, looking forward to in the next, you know, whatever the next kind of government comes into play? Uh, yeah. Um, well, I I'm not a fan of this government uh, in many many ways, but, uh, but it, oh, don't worry. Like people will soon find out in this podcast that we're definitely not like. <laughs> I'm okay, very open up about, about that. So um, don't worry. Yeah, yeah, but I, I would say, um, I would say. Oh, so one thing I find interesting is like. For, for how right-wing this government is, they actually have a, um, a pretty big focus on climate, which is which is surprising and, and unusual. Um, I, and I don't know if that's just a fact that um, it's becoming increasingly harder to ignore, but, um, but, the, but you know, I, I find it pretty interesting. And one, one of the things that has been interesting about COVID-19 is talking about this green recovery and, um, and how we can get basically, as I was saying, kind of overcome these two hurdles together. I would say uh, a lot of that is, as I mentioned, on a very technocratic level. So it's like on creating green jobs, on creating renewable energy, um, which, which is important. I mean, and and for example, like Biden's climate plan that he uh, that he was releasing just when he was still campaigning was very much uh, focused on like a just transition and green jobs because I think their their team were kind of realized that, that we need to focus on who's going to be left behind and that rather than like a, this vision of a future that might appeal to, to more, um, to younger voters, for example, um, with yeah. regards to like this government, I think one thing that's, that's frustrating and, and what, what, what has been a consequence of COVID-19 is that, um, for example, they've just cut the amount of development funding that they're giving, um, which is yes, mm-hmm. really, really, really frustrating. And, and while I understand the reasoning behind it, I, I just find it very, uh, pretty unconscionable to, to, to cut ties at this time that is um that is just so extraordinarily difficult. Um, I understand this this whole like take care of your own first, etc. But I, I found that extremely frustrating. But one of the things that I worry is that as we go through this green recovery that there'll be less there'll be less nuance in how we adapt to climate. So it's like oh, you can obviously expand the renewable energy grid, but does that mean that that's necessarily like a more equal or um I don't know, a, a more long-term solution because I, I don't know that it necessarily is a like 
that resilient in the long term to if we're kind of just basically having the exact same economy but just like substituting in little green substitutions at different points of it so i think that's my i guess that would be my critique of the government so while while they have a lot of climate stuff on the agenda they are taking a very technocratic approach to it and i don't know that they're necessarily looking at it i don't even know that that they're even mentioning climate justice i'm not i wouldn't i'm not speaking from an informed perspective though but i i think it's i think the problem is is that the people who stand to lose when you take a climate justice perspective are the people who are friends of this government and so i think that's the problem is that there's a lot of um kind of like really dodgy uh, links to like big money and, and corporations and it probably much more so in and much more transparently so in um, in the US that there's like pretty big lobbying groups and stuff but I think that there's a lot of pretty insidious um, influencing that's going on behind the scenes so I, I guess that would be my criticism is well at first glance it looks like they're pretty on it I think uh, they're taking an approach that doesn't really get into the nuance of what a climate just future would look like. Yeah, I think I completely agree, and I think I was actually quite shocked at how much climate change stuff was was coming just when I was having a look at, like from the the kind of Tories agenda. But then once you kind of get into the nitty gritty of it, is these, as you said, short term kind of plaster sticking point rather than this long term, which I think goes more hand in hand with the idea of justice and what justice like was means I want to just bring it down more onto kind of like the individual and the kind of community norm shifting I think you know we've already talked a little bit about the impact that the pandemic has had and we've had this sense of community resilience and community strengthening and, and bonds and hopefully that will be continued and I think some that's something that might become as a positive from you know from the, from the pandemic not to you know kind of minimize any of that and then to kind of move it slightly onto the individual this is something that I was wondering whether to bring this up or not, because for me at the moment, and, and you, you might have kind of different thoughts on this, is that there is so much emphasis on the individual in the climate crisis movement. Um, not that, that, you know, the, the impacts that you can have, whether, you know, choosing not to fly as much, choosing to eat less meat and those kind of things are very important. I think sometimes just on a personal level, I get so frustrated when you see that, like, you know, the top per- top percentage of, um, you probably know the stats better, in terms of yeah. CO2 emissions is like from these huge companies. But what would you say to people if someone wanted to get involved with the environmental justice kind of movement or, or what would you kind of encourage people to to look for first and to kind of take their first step into it? Um, I would say, contrary to what I, I used to believe, I, I think there's a phenomenal amount of uh, power in challenging these um, structures of inequality at the local level i think there's there's a lot of stuff that's that's happening that's basically i I think when we talk about climate justice or environmental justice we talk a lot about bangladesh uh or um maldives or these countries that are on the front line and that's that's so important but i I do think that it can sometimes feel very far away that unless you're a decision maker a politician it's like what am i supposed to do unless i can you know reduce my own carbon footprint and that will somehow help but again as you said it's like i've heard that stat too it's like a hundred companies are responsible for like 70% of emissions or something. Um, although I, I, that's an interesting stat, but I, I would say um, those are all en- like they're, they're energy companies basically. And so it's like, they are like, so Shell obviously is responsible, but it's also like who's buying Shell's product is, is another like thing. So why, why you say like, that's true. So, so I, I find that stat like interesting, but it may be a little bit missing, but I, I would say that, um, so to look into where these, where these injustices are happening, or I think that there's, we're very lucky. I mean, for, for, for all the things that I criticize about this government, we are very lucky to live in a society where your MP 
has to listen to what you have to say. And to there is a phenomenal amount of power in being informed and holding your MPs accountable. Because I actually think that very few people are able to um, like kind of understand the inner workings of how government works, but to, to kind of keep informed with like what your MP is doing on climate and pushing them on climate and kind of just picking your realm of, of what you want to focus on and keeping it small and, and then working towards that. So I'd say first is like making sure you're holding your, your elected officials accountable. I think that's really important. And then the second is mm-hmm. I would say, uh, and of course like a, from an academic perspective, I'll say this, but I, I think there's a phenomenal power in expanding your worldview through reading and through understanding different ways of looking at the climate crisis. So like taking a kind of um, like critical theory approach and looking at it through like a post-colonial lens or a feminist lens or, you know, uh, even like a queer theory lens. Like there's so many different ways of looking at the same problem and the, the ways that like people are oppressed or uh, or uh, the way that injustice is done and the more that you understand it from like this 360 degree perspective the more you'll be able to see it in day-to-day life so I would say like reading and understanding that is also a really important thing and then I guess the third thing is just um when you make an individual change which is really important um Okay, no, I have four things. So this is the third thing. When you make an individual change, which is really important, (laughs) it's important to follow that up with why you're changing that. So like I'm, I kind of started out in plastic, uh, plastic low, plastic living, zero waste living, et cetera, et cetera. And I think I kind of got subsumed in like the aesthetics of like having a jar that contains all of your waste and like, wow, I've done my bit for the environment because I have a jar and everybody else who's worse than me has a huge bag and like how terrible are they and how great am I? I think what's more important is to be able to say like what is not in here and why when you choose for example to not buy something to to follow it up with, with the company and just say like oh the reason why I'm not buying your product is because I think that you're you, know, you don't have a good enough extended producer responsibility to make sure that this packaging is going where it's going um where, where it needs to go and if everybody wrote that in every time they chose not to buy a product I think that they'd see a, a change there's a lot of like capacity to vote with your dollar which is frustrating because like I would much rather be in a system where you know the consumers uh, are you're not only defined by your consumption um exactly, and then I think yeah. the last thing would be just learning from and elevating the voices of of people who are on the front lines of the climate crisis that and I actually think Instagram is a phenomenal tool for this I've said phenomenal like 10 times I'm sorry I need a, 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 a no it's a great um, word I know I totally agree yeah 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 but I think what what has been really cool is basically following climate justice activists, especially teenagers. Like teenage girls are going to save us, um, and yes. and I follow like <laughs> so many really really cool teenagers um, who have an amazing capacity to explain big problems in very few words and in very and and not getting stuck in jargon, which I think is really cool. I mean, there's like the zero hour movement in the US, and then um, if you just if you just search the hashtag like climate activists, I mean, there's a lot of indigenous activists. That, that post pretty regularly on, on Instagram. I can, I, I'll send you some and then maybe you can put them in the show notes. Um, cause, yeah, um, that would be really helpful. Uh, there's just like too many running through my head. But I, I think there's there's a, there's a really cool um, movement online, even like TikTok. Like there's a lot of really cool climate people on TikTok um, and it's like 15 year olds. I'm just like, oh, you guys are, if I had been one iota of this cool when I was like a 15. <laughs> I, know. I actually like, it's so funny because TikTok, like 
I have I've gone through a phase of like lockdown where I like got it and then I deleted it and then I got it again and that kind of thing and I actually I know that you've also been trying yeah. to do some posts and stuff but I think some of it I found some really yeah. interesting things on there um to do with activism and things like that also just things like mm-hmm. recipes and that kind of thing and stuff so I, I don't think I think it's sort of a lot of people maybe our age and above have started to like write yeah. it off in that way but younger people are able to access you know really short yeah. kind of clips of of things and able to no, look I for see. things more um let's not write <laughs> I'm like all of my friends are like why are you on TikTok and I'm like well you know sometimes you yeah. find interesting stuff um but I, I I really think I think that's a really nice I, I'm going to try and sort of wrap up but I think that idea of following up with it with a company you know I actually next colleague that I used to work with we used to get the papers you know every morning and the Guardian started doing their um packaging their paper in yeah. biodegradable um packaging so you could put it in like the compost that kind of thing and stuff and I was like oh that's so great and stuff and my colleague was like yeah yeah so I emailed them until they did it I was like oh what and he was like yeah I just decided a few months ago that like it was so crazy that they were doing it in plastic so I just emailed them and continued emailing them like he had a little thing in his diary you know every Friday that he would just send another email to the Guardian headquarters you know and say hey by the way like can you do this and they did actually do it and they sent him a nice email back you know eventually saying you know your efforts probably among many others have have impacted it but you know I think we forget how many of us are probably sitting at home thinking, oh, I've decided not to buy that thing because they're putting too much plastic on it, for example. And if all of us sent an email, which we can all do in five minutes, it would be, it would, you know, as you said, if if someone from their customer service team is going to say, oh God, we've had so many emails about this and that does get escalated within companies. I think that's a really, really great kind of, kind of easy thing for people to do and something that everyone everyone can do yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna just wrap up there if that's okay because I feel like we've had such a broad discussion and obviously we could go on for ages about this topic and and really get into it but I just want to say thank you so much and it's been the the people that I've spoken to so far haven't come from it from an academic perspective so that's why I was really interested to get it from your side as well because I think what we forget is that there are people who are, as you said, you're doing your research literally on like this specific talk is looking at the UK in that way. And that's so important is to understand that there are people, you know, within academia and within the wider sector who are kind of researching this and trying to create change from that side of things. Um, so I wanted to say thanks. And is there anything you want to plug? Like, please go ahead um, if there's anything you want to you know, plug or tell people to kind of reinforce yeah, any points. Yeah, uh, I would just say um, thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Uh, sorry if I've rambled. <laughs> I, I find that I go off in a million no, directions. No, it was But I, I would say um, a couple things. I just, uh, I think it's important to to stay informed from different perspectives. So diversify the content that you're reading. Um, and I would rely, there's luckily a, a whole range of really cool people have been set up to, to provide resources. So I would really give a big plug to the COP26 coalition. So that's a group of civil society organizers who are kind of making sure climate justice is more present ahead of the COP26 climate negotiations at Glasgow. Uh, and then just for my part, uh, if I can just plug my uh, my Instagram, I guess it's no plastic please one. Uh, and I post uh Plastic and climate stuff there. And now TikToks. So that's the TikTok, yeah. I mean, TikTok is uh, climate made cool if you're on TikTok. Um, well, we'll definitely um, tag them in the post for going up and make sure that the um, CP26, which is obviously, it's been moved, right? It was this year, but now it's it's next yeah. year, I think. So um, definitely check that out. But yeah, thank you so much again. Um, and I just want to say that if anyone has any comments or thoughts, please do get in touch. Um, you can find us on Instagram and on Twitter and you can email in at feministfuturespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks very much.